All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only tested crypto tax software. Luca's listened to your feedback. Now you can calculate capital gains and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side, all for free. You only pay if you want to access their detailed tax reports. Luca supports unlimited transaction uploads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refund. Luca Tax wants to help Masari's unqualified opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code Masari Tax and you'll get $5 off the normal price of $39.95 when downloading today. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. Have you seen what the Crypto.com team's been up to lately? Talking about the MCO Visa card. It's a beautiful metal card you can top up with crypto and spend anywhere Visa's accepted. You get up to 5% back on all your spending, plus 100% rebates on Spotify, Netflix, and now Amazon Prime Travel. How about unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates? So many perks in just one card. You can download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours today. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at Two Bit Idiot from the Citadel in an undisclosed location, not in New York, clearly working from some abode that's not an office. I have another terrific guest today in Nathan McCauley, who's the co-founder and CEO of Anchorage, an institutional crypto custodian. Uh, This is an interesting pairing because we actually just had a conversation with Mike Belshi. And um, maybe we can talk about some of the differences in, in institutional custody, general trends that you all are seeing in the market. We're going to touch uh, a bit on the M&A environments uh, as it looks like we're heading towards a period of consolidation and, and you have made uh, a couple of acquisitions, acqui hires and acquisitions, mm-hmm. I think, um, uh, so far in, in just the, the first you know, few months of the year, last six months or so. Um, and then, uh, you know, finally, uh, we want to cover... Uh, all of the stablecoin markets and um, and and some of the mission critical uh, solutions that you all are working on now that it seems the narrative is really bifurcated in crypto between uh, what is hard money and what could perform well in a macro environment given what's going on with the coronavirus and what are the experiments that we need to foster so that we don't lose momentum even if they're not needs to have uh, right now. Uh, across different protocols or, or across different parts of the value chain. So, um, Nathan, why don't we start off uh, with the origin story? Uh, it's you know as good a starting point as any, I suppose. But um, you know, for our guests in particular, it's good to uh, understand the the context and kind of historical background that the you know the person on the other side of the camera is is coming from, and um, and and you know more than anything, just uh, learn what iterations it took for you to take Bitcoin and crypto seriously enough to dive in full time. 
Sure. So Ryan, good to, good to be connected. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I too am in an undisclosed location, obviously not, uh, not based in an office here. Uh, this is a home office or home layer, if you will. Um, but been having a, having a fun time, uh, been actually really, really impressed with everybody's ability to move to this remote work situation. Um, both mm-hmm. our, our team and then all of the, all the counterparties and clients that we're working with as well. Everyone's, everyone's dealing with it quite well. Um, so you asked a little bit about the origin story. Where did Anchorage come from? Where did we start? Uh, what's our, uh, what's our kind of our lineage, if you will? Um, so the, the story really starts uh, about a decade ago. Um, my, my co-founder and I, Diogo, we um, were early employees at Square, and that's kind of where we first met each other. And what we, what we have spent basically the last 10 years working on uh, software security systems, uh, whether that is uh, Square's backend for holding all of its uh, credit cards and um, the secure manufacturing facilities. I actually I got to go to, to, to China and set up a secure key injection facility um, on an assembly line there, there in China. And so key management has really been our bread and butter uh, for, for the last 10 years. Um, and we've been looking over time to find some way to, to work together, start a company together. Um, and so we, we spent a bunch of time at, at Square, built up a bunch of the systems there, got to, got to really see it go from, uh, say, 40, 40 or so people when we joined to uh, 1,200 by the time we left. Uh, at the end of our tenure there, we decided to uh, join this company called Docker. Docker is a um, cloud computing technology um, for those within engineering. It's, it's uh, containerization. It's probably familiar to most engineers uh, as it's widely used in cloud deployments. I think something like 80% of AWS workloads and then approaching 100% of uh, Azure and uh, GCP workloads are using, um, using Docker. And so that, um, that gave us an ability to kind of see broadly across the in- industry, uh, do massively scaled security deployments, um, working anywhere from um, enterprise software companies to uh, you know DoD deployments, uh, kind of across the board. We got to we got to work on a bunch of that, um, and then around middle to late 2017, started started looking at uh, cryptocurrency really seriously, as I think a, a lot of people were were looking at it at that point, and basically found that uh, there was a core problem in crypto that needed to be solved for institutional investors, uh, which is safe storage of their keys. There's this problem called custody. Custody really is about uh, holding the keys and uh, allowing institutional investors to do everything they would want. Um, at that time, we kind of did a, did a survey at the mar- of the market and basically came to the conclusion that everybody was doing it wrong. Uh, Everybody that existed in the industry was um, approaching crypto custody in exactly the wrong way. Um, I think the the easiest way I can describe it is that um, your first class in software security that you ever take uh, has the professor stand up and say, the only secure machine is the one that's turned off encasing concrete and put at the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the rest of your education is about how to not do that and how to actually build usable systems that work in the real world. And when we surveyed the landscape, we realized that everybody had started on day one. Uh, they had um, taken that 
uh, that thing that is supposed to be an idealized model and not really supposed to actually be used. And somehow it had spread as this meme across the whole world that it was the right way to do it. Um, and so everybody in crypto at the time thought, hey, cold storage is the way to do it. Cold storage, everyone's bragging about their cold storage systems. Um, and we, we viewed that as just um, anathema to how things would actually happen. Um, and so we said, okay, we actually have like a really distinct technology advantage that we can do if we can, if we can build this right, um, use modern security practices. Um, and so that was kind of the, the theory was we should, we should build the system. We know it's going to take a lot of work. So we raised money in 2017, uh, built up a pretty sizable engineering team, uh, and then basically just went into stealth. Uh, we spent mm-hmm. all of 2018 building our technology, didn't talk to anybody, didn't do anything except for uh, building out the system, launched in 2019, and then immediately started onboarding the biggest crypto funds in the world. Uh, and so that that kind of period of stealth of, uh, you know, that first crypto winner, if you will, uh, of, of post-2017, 2018, uh, was where we got to really bear down and build. And so... Um, it was nice to kind of, kind of come out in 2019, start onboarding folks, start s- having people see that there is a better way. There is a better way to deal with uh, crypto custody. Um, 2019 was a, our story was onboarding clients, continuing to add assets, uh, add other counterparties, start to do all that. And now coming into 2020, we're, we're positioned extremely well. Like you talked about a little bit earlier, we've done some acquisitions. Maybe we can talk about that. Um, continuing to onboard clients. We've got a, a number of really significant partners. Um, and we're almost thinking of it in, in the same way as 2018, where 2018 was a crypto winner where we got to build. Uh, 2020, to the, to the degree we're in a, a macro environment that uh, might be a little bit depressed, we also get to spend time this year building. Um, so that, that kind of covers it as a high level. Happy to dig in anymore or uh, take the conversation wherever you'd like to go. Uh, in terms of asset support, uh, you know, you've, you've obviously uh, mentioned you're working with some of the large crypto exchanges. Um, what factors in to whether to support an asset? What, what type of, uh, of, of onboarding process do you anticipate? And is that materially different for um, public-private blockchains, right? So, so I think Libra is maybe an extreme case, but I'm curious as, as some of these other uh, stablecoin initiatives get off the ground, you're going to want to support those as well as a licensed qualified custodian. Um, things that are built on Hyperledger, R3, or, or, or the like. Are you fully supportive of all of these different types of systems, or is it primarily crypto assets and ones that are built um, like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, um, and maybe to a lesser extent like Libra? I know we're going to talk about them in a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so our, our core platform has been built very, very flexibly. Um, the, the core thesis of our platform is when you're holding keys, those keys ought to be usable. Uh, so you ought to be able to do transactions. You ought to be able to buy, sell. Um, but you also ought to be able to do pretty interesting things like integrate with smart contract networks. Uh, so staking, governance, all of that should be defaults possible and, and frankly easy through your custodian. Uh, and so that, that base custody layer that we spent a lot of time building has allowed us to be extremely flexible in terms of what we support and how we support it. Um, we're very responsive to, to client demand. If, if clients want us to support an asset, we're, we're happy to prioritize it. And um, that 
that naturally has us take as one input um, the coin's market cap. Like how big is the how big is the asset? How widely traded is it? How much demand is there for the asset? Um, but then we also you know have to make sure that we go through a, a diligence process in terms of. Um, Looking at looking at the team that built the assets, a um, little bit of securities analysis. Although we're we're able to custody um, securities or non securities, um, totally fine within our qualified custody uh, regime. Uh, and then as you start to look at uh, private blockchains or even kind of the same category security tokens, um, we're we're looking at um, some security token offerings. In fact, we're we're announced as the as the custodian for the um, the largest. Um, security token offering, not, not necessarily largest security token, offering, but the, the first um, security token IPO. It's actually registered with the SEC where we're, we're going to be the, the custodian for that. Um, so the asset support equation, uh, we're, it's really paying dividends on the, the way we built the custody system has allowed us to be very, very flexible there. Um, and, um, you know, the, the black box in crypto in general is Libra. Uh, much fanfare. The biggest story of 2019, it was, um, you know, now somewhat uh, controversial in terms of how it's being managed, you know, who, who is, is calling the shots, how actively involved Facebook is going to be. Um, I don't want to get into the politics of it at your request. I would love the gory details if you wanted to chime in, but I, I, can, I can appreciate that, um, that, that that doesn't make sense for you. Um, what I'm most interested in, though, is, um, you know, understanding exactly how you assess Libra and its tech stack and its, um, its, its productivity and the way that things are shipped and the quality uh, that you've seen versus the truly open systems like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, uh, the ones that are, you know, globally managed, globally distributed, but, um, you know, most likely do not have the same caliber of engineers to an individual as an entity like Facebook, right? Maybe because it's impossible. You can't pay them enough. You can't coordinate the efforts enough. You can't pull all the different moving pieces together in quite the same way as you can when you're a half trillion dollar company. Yeah. Um, what has what your experience been? How did you uh, first get involved and, and become one of the early members of the association? Uh, sure. So, um, bunch of bunch of questions there. Um, definitely happy to happy to talk a little bit about the the quality of the team that they they've assembled. Um, from from a very early stage, it was clear that uh, the team over at Facebook uh, was taking this initiative very very seriously and was going to hire extremely good talent, both on on engineering, but even even more broadly. Um, their uh, their legal team, uh, their business development folks. It was it was very clear that this was going to be a a significant initiative, um, and from the early conversations, even even before there was an idea of a of a Libra association, we uh, got a, a pretty clear picture that that was going to be the case. Um, I think one of the most interesting things on the um, on the technical implementation side was uh, it was very clear to them from the very beginning that the the blockchain itself was inherently going to need to be high volume. Uh, and so because it was going to need to be high volume, uh, you couldn't really have it be um, a science experiment that kind of grows over time. Uh, you know, we've seen some of the more publicly launched blockchains that are hitting, hitting scaling issues. Um, and, you know, over time, they'll be able to kind of adjust those scaling issues. Uh, but something at, at Facebook's scale, uh, the, the kind of the ambitions that they have for uh, Libra, 
kind of necessitates that you have to uh, think very far ahead. And it's actually pretty uncommon to have to think about that. If you think of a, a startup or any other kind of tech stack, um, you kind of iteratively build over time. With Libra, it was, it was clear that that was going to have to be uh, super scalable from day one. Uh, and so they, they put together a fantastic engineering team. And when you go talk in the, in the crypto community, there's a number of other projects that are looking to adopt some of the design decisions uh, that they've, they've made with the, the Libra blockchain. Uh, for example, some of the consensus mechanisms, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some people look at adopting something like the, the move programming language as a, as a smart contract language. Um, so th there's a, bu a bunch there that I think is actually going to have really good effects um, for, the, for the whole ecosystem, uh, even just on the, on the tech level. Um, so that's been, that's been really great in terms of why we got involved and why we were interested in it. Um, you know, we started Anchorage because we wanted to see crypto furthered and, uh, in our view, crypto gets furthered by, uh, increasing store of value, increased medium of exchange, increased unit of account, um, having, uh, tangible ways to use this across a broad, a broad strain, broad range of different use cases. Um, just helps the whole ecosystem overall. And so um, Libra was an obvious one to get involved with just because you look at how, how massive the opportunity is, um, the, the distribution and reach that uh, Facebook can possibly put behind this. Uh, it, was a, it was really clearly something that we wanted to get involved with. And the fact that kind of just at the very beginning, they always wanted this to be an open system. Uh, there was never an idea that this would be a face coin that would be totally internal private blockchain like you you talked about earlier. Uh, the goal is always to kind of have this be a, a community-owned asset uh, that could be um, trusted to be, you know, over time independent uh, from any any particular control. Uh, so that all of that kind of factored into why we wanted to get involved. Can you talk a little bit about um, the early contribution process? Because from an outside perspective, certainly, you know, from a narrative perspective, okay, Facebook has hundreds of engineers that are working on this. Um, and then they've got all of these other members in, you know, in, in various capacities, but that probably are not putting anywhere near the same juice behind this um, as Facebook, at least initially. What, um, what were some of the early things that the custodians uh, were responsible for versus the investors versus uh, the other stakeholders on the traditional payment side, or at least what was the vision there and, and, and how did you see yourselves slotting in as a, a member organization early on? Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the interesting things to think about there from the point of view of custodians, and this might be something that not a lot of people understand about uh, custodians, is that uh, as, a, as a crypto custodian, your engineering team ends up with a very, very broad understanding of the whole crypto ecosystem. And the reason for that is that you have to uh, implement with every blockchain and integrate with every blockchain in a very stable, secure, and, and usable way. Uh, and so the, the kind of cross-cutting understanding of different blockchains, different engineering approaches that people have taken uh, ends up giving custodians a, a very, very good understanding that is in many ways unmatched by um, many, many industry participants. Uh, and so being, being able to have a seat at the table just to, to talk about, you know, hey, here are, here are things that make this easy for custody, here are things that make this easy for 
um, smart contract networks, whether you're talking about um, here's the, the right way to do delegation, here's the right way to do governance. Uh, as, a, as a custodian, you end up having um, a lot of just a wide purview on how things might work. Um, in terms of kind of the, the initial project and how it, how it got off the ground, um, I, think it's, I think it's fair to say that a, a project like this, um, at initial blush, you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's actually impossible. Um, and so somebody actually trying to do it has to take quite a few steps uh, to just be able to germinate the idea. Um, because if you don't kind of germinate the idea, no one's going to believe that it's actually possible. And so the fact that uh, Facebook kind of did a bunch of that work early on uh, to, you know, look at the, uh, say, the, the, the Libra white paper that they put out, uh, starting to think about how this thing could actually work. Um, you have to do a bunch of that stuff in order for people to even, even believe that something like this is executable and profitable and, or excuse me, possible, something that people want to get on board with. And so um, they, did, they did a lot there, um, but frankly, I don't know of another way you could have, you could have done it. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see, uh, there's the feasibility of coordinating with that many high profile partners and just having anything stand or wraps as well. Right. So, um, until things were ready, it was tough to kind of put this out in the wild and have, you know, public debates between even the the professional constituents, um, for, for how this was developed. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on what's next for the project and where things stand today, governance aside, you know, internal spats aside, um, can we expect to see uh, some movement here from the Libra Association, even if Facebook is uh, and their involvement is, is dialed back a bit this year, or, or is this something that now extends into 2021 and, and maybe even further? Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's a, a ton still going on. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily think of it as things are on hold uh, either from the, um, from the Facebook side or the, the Libra association side. Um, as, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, things are, things are continuing to move. Um, there's continued progress there. You know, I think one of the, one of the interesting things here is um, thinking about how, um, how COVID and coronavirus factors into all of this. I mean, I think mm-hmm. what is, uh, what is very clear is that um, the the need for a uh, a global distribution mechanism for um, delivering uh, financial inclusion ends up being pretty important in a in a, a world that is you know having to quarantine for a little while. And so, in in many ways, I think we're uh, we're learning as a society that these kinds of things are important and should mm-hmm. should go forward. And, you know, we got a um, we got a letter from a, a U.S. senator um, urging us to stay the course and to stay in the Libra Association, in in large part citing the fact that some of this kind of stuff is already available in, say, Africa and other parts of the other parts of the world. Um, and does the does the U.S. want to fall behind on this, or do we want to be an innovator? And I think it's I think it's really important for us to continue to be an innovator on this. Um, certainly appreciated um, Senator Round's support on that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I view kind of the, the macro environment here as even more reason uh, to stay engaged and stay involved on this thing. It's interesting that you think about Libra in that light when I think most people would think first and foremost about Bitcoin and it, it having its moments. 
uh, given the stimulus that was passed, given the you know QE infinity, given everything's going on in the eurozone right now, uh, Hungary just suspended parliaments. Uh, you know, Italy is, is seems to be getting uh, cozier and cozier uh, with China, and some of the you know inroads that the Chinese have made through their Belt and Road Initiative yeah. uh, makes it seem more and more likely that, that you could have a, a crisis of sorts with Italy potentially using uh, leaving leaving the EU. Um, the uh, two largest uh, reserve, three largest reserve currencies in the world, Japan, U.S., uh, dollar, and, and the euro, one of them seems like it's, it's very much in jeopardy. The other one is printing an unprecedented amount of money. And the third uh, has already been dealing with a pretty significant recession due to some, some tax increases and, and the effect of the tsunami, or sorry, not the tsunami, the, um, the super typhoon uh, yeah. back in, in Q4 of, of last year. So... Um, when you think about reserves, you know, Libra was ostensibly going to be a basket of reserve currencies. Now it seems that they've shifted their attention to being U.S. dollar reserve. How important is that now versus, versus the digital gold narrative versus the, the digital oil narrative of, of Bitcoin and Ether and other um, censorship resistant crypto assets? And what have you seen, if anything, from your clients uh, that might be signal in terms of, of how the markets are uh, reacting to current events and maybe anticipating future inflation or um, monetary debasement. Yeah, so that's a it's it's funny because it is it is absolutely two sides of the two sides of the same coin. There, um, I'd say the the first thing with respect to you know kind of uh, how we're how we're thinking about distribution of. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're printing money in the U S and how are we going to, how are we going to distribute that? Um, what is the, what is the mechanism going to be by which, um, people are able to get access to that? Um, there's a, there's a lot of questions there around how do you deliver something like that to the unbanked, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so when I look at something like Libra or other kinds of crypto projects, it starts to look very promising in that regard. You know, my, um, my old employer, Square, uh, Square Cash, for many people, is acting as their bank account. Uh, and so when you, when you think about how do people actually get access to a bank account, uh, how do people actually get um, interest-returning interest accounts that can help them keep up with inflation? Because basically, I mean, if you're holding cash, you're uh, kind of in a bad shape if we're printing more cash. So you want to have at least some way to keep up with inflation. Um, mm -hmm. People need ways to keep up with inflation. Um, and it's hard to do that outside of any kind of financial institution. Uh, so anything that, um, makes it easier to serve those kind of folks is a, is a net win there. Uh, in terms of Bitcoin versus, um, USD or, uh, fiat currency backed stable coins. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting question. Uh, we have a, we have diversity of clients. Uh, so we've got some clients who their thesis is, uh, we got to buy Bitcoin on the way down. Uh, because Bitcoin, uh, we didn't we didn't ever think it was going to be this cheap ever again. Uh, so this is this mm -hmm. is a great opportunity. So we've uh, we've processed a lot of uh, purchase requests uh, over the last, past couple of months uh, because uh, wow, this is this is really really affordable. Uh, it's also worth saying that like you know Bitcoin's market recovered in a sense. It didn't it didn't bottom out. It it survived this crash, um, which I think gives it a, an anti fragile kind of narrative where you say, hey, a, a global recession 
what's looking like will likely be a global recession. Um, it's, it's doing pretty well sitting here, uh, you know, April 1st, 2020, it looks, it looks like it's, it's doing well. Um, and then, uh, in terms of reserve currencies in the, in the world, um, you know, the, the trouble with the trouble with QE is that it is a, um, it's not a great idea, but the American economy is so strong that we might actually be able to do it for quite some time. Um, depending on, uh, and when I say quite some time, it is, it is conceivable that we could do this for a hundred years. You know, there are, there are people out there saying that we should be issuing hundred year treasuries to invest in infrastructure. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, do well, this do is some, the new this is the newest proposal yeah uh, being you know uh, two, an, an additional two trillion dollars to uh, to spend on infrastructure because uh, you know now is a golden opportunity and you should never let a crisis go to waste right yeah I mean we have a conceivably we could do uh, another new deal and upgrade the entire country you know, uh, at zero, at zero percent interest. And, uh, at a time when the dollar is the reserve, uh, currency for as long as that lasts, who knows, but, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's funny. Um, this, I'm not sure if you know my origin story, but this is actually my origin story in many ways. Um, in 2011, uh, around the debt sequester mm. where it first became obvious to me, that the U.S. debt doesn't matter, at least not to the politicians, because they had this very strict draconian deadline where they said, if we do not pass this budget resolution or we do not come to a compromise, there's going to be a 20% across the board cut. And sure enough, that got extended and, and you know, kind of into perpetuity, and it led to the S&P deck downgrade. And the only way that you could have played that incorrectly is a market thesis, which is the way that I did. Oh, which no. Was, which was to buy gold, uh, short yeah. the U.S. Treasury ETF, and um, and ignore Bitcoin because mm-hmm. I wasn't technical and I didn't really understand how it worked, uh, and it seemed like mad science and, and kind of not not evolved enough. But that same thing is playing out again, right? And, and this happened in two thousand eight. You know, uh, U.S. has a, a mortgage crisis. Um, Twenty eleven. You know, the the U.S. debt gets downgraded. Now again, uh, we might be the epicenter of this health crisis and financial crisis and people can't get enough dollars because it's got this, you know, status as a shelling point um, that is just too deeply ingrained into the, into the legacy financial system to, to really remove from it. Um, so, you know, one way to think about uh, the path forward might be to think about which currencies fall or, you know, after we get through the worst of the health crisis, um, are there regions uh, that you're focused on? Are there uh, investor types that you're now targeting, we're starting to hear uh, inbound interest from that look different from the the traditional crypto fund manager or the institutions we already know are starting to play around um, with uh, with with this asset class. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question. So we've um, we've talked to a lot of people who I would say are crypto curious. They're they're doing their due diligence, whether it's a, a family office or all the way up to global asset managers. People are trying to get smarter. People are trying to understand. Um, I think the the fact on the ground right now is that like right now they have parts of their portfolio that are in a bit of trouble, uh, either in a bit of trouble or uh, they have a lot of opportunity. Um, and so they're they're looking at some of their more traditional investment opportunities as something that is uh, pretty promising, and you you need to you need to jump on those. 
while also saying, okay, where are the cards going to fall? And over the next, over the next 10 years, do we expect an um, equity uh, uninterrupted bull market for another 10 years? Or is this going to be a time when alternative assets like cryptos might hold the day? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think we're, 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 dealing with a lot of those conversations, I will say that, you know, some of the folks are just triaging their situation right now. And I think that's totally fine given where the, given where the market is. Uh, but I do expect that more people will be looking at, looking at crypto as a, um, uh, as an investment thesis over the next few years. What's next on the roadmap uh, for, for you guys? Has, has that changed at all uh, given the circumstances or, um, or is it just kind of business as usual? one foot in front of the other, you know, you, you know, what you have to deliver you know, without giving two away trade secrets. Yeah. Is there anything they're able to share about um, kind of the next milestones and, and um, big reveals uh, that you might yeah. be able to tease? Because if I'm not mistaken, we're talking from the future right now. Uh, and you have, I think an embargoed release for tomorrow morning. Today is April 1st. Uh, you have right. something for tomorrow morning. You want to talk about that a little bit, knowing that this is going to air probably April 6th or 8th. Uh, sure. Yeah. So we're, we're, uh, we have a kind of a steady drumbeat of, uh, new announcements. Um, and so the, the announcement that, uh, will, um, uh, will be live by the time this, uh, launches is that we've added support for, uh, ripple. Um, that's, uh, there's, a actually quite a, quite a lot of institutional folks that have ripple. Uh, and so we're, um, we're looking forward to, uh, starting to onboard some of those folks. There's actually a, quite a lot of them who want to want to hold with us. Um, but asset asset launches are really exciting because they give us um, kind of natural allies in the in the space where you look at hey people that are um, trying to make their asset work uh, have it meet its meet its hypothesis it's a it's a really fun uh, fun way to get to work together uh, beyond that we're uh, in a in a kind of weird sense we just finished uh, the best quarter ever for the company. Uh, and so from, from our point of view, uh, onboarding clients continues at a, at a pretty rapid clip and we're, we're starting to look forward at, um, how do we become more, a, more a core piece of infrastructure for the, um, for the industry to give one example, um, the maker votes that needed to happen, uh, kind of over, over a period of a couple weeks there, um, were in, in large part facilitated by our platform. Uh, we were able to allow uh, clients to vote directly from custody all of their all of their maker positions, um, and Maker was able to you know up, update the parameters and, and do a lot of that uh, in large part because we we support their their voting mechanism. Uh, so continuing to double down on those kind of native participation features is something that's very very interesting to us. The other one that you'll increasingly see is um, going kind of all in on this uh, idea of being able to. Um, trade and do other kind of prime brokerage activities out of your out of your custodian. Uh, so we launched the trading desk earlier this year. Um, kind of announced that along with our acquisition of Merkle Data, uh, they're kind of a, a data analytics firm that we're um, using to help us uh, do better better job at brokerage and better job at other kinds of activities that you'd see out of a out of a prime broker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so we're looking at 2020 as a, as a year to kind of continue to add assets, continue to ally, our, ally ourselves uh, in the market, um, but then also roll out uh, new, new product offerings. 
Um, I want to go back to uh, talking about Ripple uh, a bit because, sure. uh, as you know, I've been um, uh, outspoken about some of the reporting issues and discrepancies uh, that we tend to see regarding XRP and its usage. Um, this came up in a conversation with Daniel Vogel as well uh, from Bitso, uh, who talked about the corridor that they've uh, basically built with Ripple um, to ensure that a sizable percentage of, of flows in the U.S.-Mexico quarter is actually leveraging the uh, X-Rapid blockchain. And because Ripple has investments on either side of that uh, quarter now between MoneyGram and then Bitso in, in Mexico, um, it is a channel that seems to be you know picking up steam. Are, are there other types of entities outside of, of crypto exchanges and, and kind of crypto money transmitters that are in this cohort uh, that, that, that are leveraging uh, XRP? And, and is that the kind of target demographic or, or is it still um, exchanges that are supporting the assets and, and, you know, other, uh, other, other crypto players, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. it's a good question. So our, our bread and butter is supporting, crypto investors. Mm -hmm. uh, and so someone, someone who has a, a crypto fund, they probably have taken LP money and they're uh, a number of general partners who are looking to um, allocate assets into crypto. Uh, and so we, we support those folks. And so at that, at that level, um, it is sufficient for us to hear, hey, our clients want to uh, invest in Ripple or any other particular asset. Uh, as, a, as a custodian, as an infrastructure provider, uh, we do as much as we can to kind of take a um, hands-off approach to the, the assets that we support. Certainly do our, our due diligence and, and look at those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, but for, for us, our, our main clientele are the crypto investors themselves uh, rather than um, kind of infrastructure players. I do imagine that we will see more infrastructure providers start to use our platform over time as we, um, as we start to roll out more features, say like an API and those kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. But as of yet, our, our main clientele are the investors themselves. Uh, what else are you excited about for, uh, for 2020? What's the, what's the sexiest part of the business that if you had one banner image for this uh, entire podcast, uh, we could leave uh, the viewers behind on? Because, uh, and I, I presented this challenge to, to, to Mike as well. Crypto custody is one of those like three pillars of, of institutional adoption that is necessary. Yeah. You know, data integrity when it comes to marking your books and, and, and ensuring that you have best bid and offer. Regulatory clarity, which by and large is working itself out for Bitcoin, less so for, for other assets just yet. But for Bitcoin, at least there is you know, quite a bit more clarity. And then the third is just qualified custody. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously handle the third, which is important, but, um, but how, do you, how do you explain... Um, the uh, the sexiest parts of the business to your customers uh, and and generally you know to your kids. Sure, I think I think what's most interesting here is we will, and I don't think this is going to be specific to us, but we will all wake up in say we'll just call it April first of twenty twenty one, and we won't perceive the people that we currently perceive as custodians to be custodians. Uh, because I think what's going to happen is the the notion and understanding of what crypto custody is and how it's dramatically different than traditional finance uh, is going to morph pretty significantly. Um, and so that that at least looks like um, settlement layers, 
uh, that at least looks like uh, lending and trading APIs. Uh, and so when you kind of take a step back, uh, we, I, I think, will not even be talking about crypto custody in, um, in 2021. Um, because there's such a transformation of different things that need to come together. All those things I talked about dovetailed directly with staking governance uh, and truly integration with the smart contract networks. Mm -hmm. uh, this fact that you need kind of all of those in a, in a single, in a single place is going to be something that is uh, very different from say a BNY Mellon. It's also going to be feel very different from a Goldman Sachs prime brokerage. And it's, it's going to feel different than, uh, say, an app store. And so it's, it's all of those, but none of those really. And so I almost, I almost feel like we need a new, a new term, a new category for what it is that we're all going to become. Uh, and so I have no clue if what I just described is, is sexy or interesting. In many ways, I hope that it is boring uh, because this kind of an infrastructure means layer, you're doing your job. Yes. Yes. You want to be, uh, you want to be boring and, um, so consistently helping your clients that they forget that, that you exist in many ways. And so, mm -hmm. um, that, that I think would be the, the headline here is that there is a, a pretty massive transformation that's going on in the, in the custody landscape. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be really cool to watch. Well, Nathan, definitely appreciate you hopping on. Um, what is your prognostication for how the coronavirus is, is ultimately going to shake up the, um, the crypto M&A scene? Are, are you guys actively looking for additional tuck-ins? Uh, are you going to become acquisitive? How are you thinking about staffing and, and just kind of navigating this, given that you do have a, a pretty decent-sized balance sheet? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, definitely a time to be looking at those kinds of things. Um, one of my... One of my colleagues described it recently like um, Ali versus Frazier, where um, everybody should uh, take their hits, take their punches for maybe three or four, ten rounds, mm -hmm. uh, and then come out of this swinging. And so I think what, I think what a lot of us are going to see, and, and certainly this is going to be the case for Anchorage, um, we're going to be coming out of this very, very strong, very, very well positioned. Uh, and it's, it's pretty exciting to see what that's, that's going to bring. Uh, both just because of the, the opportunities that Anchorage is going to have uh, to, to the direct an answer to your question. Yes, we are very much considering um, multiple uh, acquisitions. Uh, and so stay tuned uh, to possibly um, see those happening. We already, we already did the one earlier this year, but we're looking at at least two, maybe three more. Mm -hmm. uh, and beyond that, um, how is this, how is COVID-19 and coronavirus going to change the overall macro environment? I think that one is nearly impossible to predict. Um, what I can say with certainty is that it is going to favor agile and reactive companies, companies that are able to turn quickly, um, act on market opportunities. Uh, and so we're going to be, uh, paying very close attention to what happens. We have a, we have a number of hypotheses um, that we, we think are going to play out, um, but more than anything, we're looking to be um, flexible to how, how things start to shake out. Excellent. Well, couldn't have said it better myself. I think that's what we're trying to internalize as well. How can we be fast? Uh, still, you know, not meander too far from the, the, the vision and mission that we exactly. have for the super long term, right? 
Um, but uh, but ensure that we're we're you know being realistic about roadmap, being realistic about where the customer needs are right now, um, which is as good a place as any in this podcast to say yep. that anyone that's listening should head over to mainnet.events. We got to get you involved as well. Um, June 1st through 3rd, our first and entirely virtual summit. I am excited to get back in the conference game. It will be my first conference production since Consensus 2017, Consensus 2016. So excited to get back on that saddle. And, um, and we've got 100 great speakers lined up. Uh, including maybe Nathan, maybe Diogo. We'll catch up on that off yep. camera. But uh, so far, I've had about a 95% yes rate. So uh, no pressure. And, uh, and, and good we'll OKRs sure there. You, yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll make sure that you have, um, uh, that you have some uh, announcements teed up for that anyway. You yeah. throw up the bat sign, and, and sometimes people uh, see it and, and want to get involved. So um, 50% of the profits are going to go to uh, COVID relief in some way, shape, or form, whether that's teams that are sucking wind or, um, or you know, we're in uncharted territories. We don't even know what the right response is yet. So, yeah. um, But that is, that is going to be your mark. So uh, in the meantime, uh, Nathan, this has been uh, great. Appreciate you shedding, uh, shedding light on the company, on, on Libra, and uh, – as always, uh, looking forward to what you have coming out next and, and appreciate your time today. Ryan, it was a pleasure. Well, I look forward to coming on again sometime. And for everybody that's tuning in, until next time, be good, stay safe. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.